Well, good morning. Welcome again to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew. If you're a guest joining us, we're just grateful that God's brought you here this morning. What a wonderful time of corporate worship we had together this morning. We felt the Spirit of God and His presence here. And let's pray as we continue on with our uh, sermon now, as we stand under God's Word, that His presence and His Spirit would be here among us. So we <clears throat> are in the middle of a series on community, and our vision for the church, for the Gathering Church this January, is the relaunching of our community groups. And so we've started five new groups. Thanks, brother. We've started five new groups in January, and uh, the reason for that is that we believe, and our vision here at the Gathering Church is that community groups are the first step at getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. So community groups, they serve us by helping us get our feet on the ground in Christian community. And because of that, our vision is that every member at the Gathering Church would be in a community group. And I'm happy to report that uh, this relaunch so far has been very successful, that many members and others have joined groups, but I wanted to make you aware of two other groups that are starting. Uh, the first is one that Brian Davis is leading and Matt and Karen Lyons are hosting, and that is starting at the Lyons home in February. So Brian, you can raise your hand. Brian is the brother that gave the prayer and catechism this morning. If you have questions about that community group, meeting in Happy Valley twice a month starting in February. So if you're still looking for a community group, you can talk to Brian Davis. Uh, the second one that's starting, Lord willing, is one that my family uh, will be hosting and leading along with Aaron and Lindsay Edmonds. Uh, that's going to be starting in March, and there's only two families in the group so far. So if you'd like to join a group that we're starting, feel free to talk to me. And if you have any questions uh, about anything regarding community groups or membership, you can email connect at thegatheringchurch.com. Connect at thegatheringchurch.com, and that email will get to someone who can get you the information that you need. Uh, second, just as we're continuing talking about community, again, just want to welcome Trevor and Jess and Ellie Binkley. So grateful that you're here. Um, let me start as we're talking about community by reading to you uh, the closing to Romans chapter 16. This morning, our sermon will be based out of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. But there's something remarkable and instructive for us as we begin here at the end of Romans 16. Starting at verse 7, or 6 rather, you can go actually all the way to verse 3. Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risk their necks for my life. To whom not I only give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentile give thanks to them as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphitus, who was the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Epaphitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and so on, and so on, and so on. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. And he continues. What's striking about Romans chapter 16, and the closing here that Paul gives, is you get this snapshot into Christian community. And you get names that are multi-ethnic. 
You have men and women. You have young people. You have old people. You have Paul telling Rufus, greet your mom for me. Because she's my mother in the faith as well. And what's striking about this closing is that it's utterly unique in the ancient world. That here you have one of the most educated men of his time, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He's highly educated. He's multilingual. He's very conversant with the scriptures. He's very conversant with philosophy as we see how he engages people in the book of Acts. And he's greeting women, people of different race, people of different socioeconomic status. And it's completely unique to the ancient world. Rodney Stark, who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and his purpose in that book is trying to answer the question, how did Christianity grow from this outpost religion, which started in an outpost in the Roman Empire, how did it grow to be the world religion in just a couple hundred years? And he says this. He said, in a Christian congregation, its members were bound together not only by common rights, but by a common way of life. Love of one's neighbor is not an exclusive Christian virtue, but in this time period, Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group. The church provided the essentials of social security, but even more important, I suspect, than these material benefits was the sense of belonging which the Christian community could give. Central to the sense of, of community and belonging, one common to all exclusive religious groups were the strong bonds between the clergy and the rank and file. You did not approach Christian clergy to purchase religious goods, but to be guided in fulfilling the Christian life. Nor were the clergy distanced from their flocks, like they were initiated elite. They were holding back in, this, in certain secrets, but they were teachers and friends. And finally, Christianity was a mass movement Rooted in highly committed rank and file, it had the advantage of the best of all marketing techniques, person-to-person influence. And Christianity did not grow because of miracle workings in the marketplace, although much of that was going on, but it grew because Christians constituted an intense community. It grew because Christianity constituted an intense community. And that's what Paul is writing at the end of his letter in Romans chapter 16. And he's addressing just a multitude of a varied kind of people. And we see that assembled in our congregation this morning. We have people who are united not by socioeconomic status or by gender or by race, but people that are united by a common bond that have received the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that... Is how Christianity grew so rapidly in the first couple centuries. And it is why one of our core values as a local church is community. Because we believe that God did not just purchase isolated individuals, but God has purchased for himself a people. And he's purchased for himself a people who are to gather and commit themselves together into a local congregation and to live life one-on-one, interconnected, radically interconnected even to one another. And as we do that, It brings glory to God, it's for our good, and it's a witness to the watching world, where there is a counter-cultural community going on, because nothing else can gather people like Jesus Christ can gather people. 
Republicans don't gather every day to talk about politics. Well, maybe a couple of them do. But people don't gather every day to talk about their social interests. But people were gathering every day, we read in the book of Acts, to fellowship with one another, to break bread with one another, to sit under the apostles' teaching together, and to be devoted to one another. Because they'd been cut to the heart. They'd been touched by a radical mercy, a radical grace. They'd been touched by God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's our vision. Our vision is to look to the early church. Our vision is to look to what the New Testament teaches and to cultivate that kind of community among us. Now, there's a certain phenomenon that a preacher experiences, and that is, and I mean this, I mean this completely loving, I don't have any, anything in mind when I say this, but oftentimes when I'm finished preaching, someone will come up to me and say, you had me in mind, didn't you? And nine times out of ten, the answer is no. I actually didn't. Last week, that happened to me three times. Three times. The answer was no. But it was a strong word last week, and I realized that. And again, this message this morning is a strong word. And I might have a few of you walking up to me asking if I had you in mind. And maybe I did, and maybe I didn't. So let me read to us the text this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I long to preach the gospel to you, my friends. The beginning of this text, the beginning of this sermon is a hard word, but I long for us to look to Jesus Christ and to see his beauty and glory and to see all that he is for us and to see his radical mercy. He is the one who does not hold our transgressions against us. And the things that he's called us to in Christian community and Christian love, he has already done for us in himself. As far as the east is from the west is how far our transgressions are from us. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil For evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for your word. And we are grateful that we can call you our Father. Because your Son, our older brother Jesus Christ, has made a way to bring us back to you. Because you have not 
held our transgressions against us, but your wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. We now by faith, by sheer mercy and love and grace can come into your presence, fully accepted. Help us, Lord, to look to you as we consider this pressing issue of Christian community as we bear with one another. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Point one is called What It Is. What It Is. I was uh, visiting with Chris Taylor yesterday afternoon and talking about the sermon this morning and just mentioned to him, and he was mentioning to me, how can you how can you preach the text that, you, that I just read in one sermon? He said, you could probably preach five, ten, fifteen sermons on it. So I, I got home, and I just looked at the text, and I, in about ten minutes, I, I marked out about fifteen different sermons that you could preach just on this passage. But you're just going to get one. And because of that, we're going to focus in on one main issue that presents itself in this text, because this text is what scholars will call a paranesis. And a paranesis is a text that seems to kind of be a laundry list of sorts of different proverbial statements. Uh, But if you look at it, you can see that a lot of what Paul is doing here is he's drawing on the teachings of Jesus himself. For example, in verse 14, when he says, bless those who persecute you, that's exactly what Jesus says at the Sermon on the Plain in the book of Luke. Or do not repay evil for evil, or live at peace with everyone, or if your enemy is hungry, feed him. These are all statements that are coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. These are direct teachings of Jesus. And sort of the central theme here, as you've seen the theme through the the sermon, through the, 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 uh, the worship and the scripture reading and so on, the central theme to all this is love. It's a picture and it's a description of Christian love in the context of community. And the pressing issue that Romans 12 is dealing with is the call for peace and patience and love and freedom from vengeance, freedom from returning punishment, freedom from retribution when it just seems so right. The big picture in front of us is, is, is clear. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. 17, repay no one evil for evil. 18, live peaceably with all. 19, never, never avenge yourself. Never. Verse 20, instead if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Verse 21, finally, overcome the evil that is done to you, I think we could read with good. Overcome the evil, the wickedness, the harm, the hurt that has been done to you with good. The clear and uniform message here is that we should love those who have wronged us. And love means treating them better than they deserve treating them better than they deserve, not returning evil for evil, but blessing them from a heart and helping them with what they need. So what we're looking at here in describing this can be described 
in Galatians 5.22 as one of the fruits of the Spirit as patience. And patience is a word that we use a lot. We use it with our children, but the King James Version would translate the word patience as long-suffering. Because that's what patience really is. (laughs) It's enduring uh, mistreatment, and sometimes for a really long time. It's enduring the treatment of others to us, and not retributing and, and, and avenging ourselves, but enduring that and suffering, sometimes for a really long time. Paul says in Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, same word, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the connection, you see the connection between bearing with someone and patience. To bear with someone means that there's something actually there to bear. I know this sounds very obvious, sounds very matter-of-fact, but it's, it, we so often forget it. That all of Paul's commands that he's giving to his churches are speaking into real life situations. Real people that are actually struggling to live with one another. Okay, so when Paul says that you need to be patient and bear with one another in love, it assumes the fact that there's something to be patient with. That there's something that needs to be bearing. It doesn't mean that everything's happy clappy in the church that he's writing to. It means that there's actual conflict, actual problems, people actually struggling with one another. And I just... just as a word to us, so often we are so utterly shocked when someone wrongs us. I am. We so are so quickly shocked when someone actually wrongs us in the church. But the Bible is constantly speaking and teaching and preaching to our weakness. The Bible wouldn't talk about the need to be patient and to bear and to long suffer so much if it didn't happen all the time. He'll tell us again in Colossians chapter 3 to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Again, the connection between bearing with people and being patient with them, which of course again means that the meaning of patience is to bear up under difficult situations and to do so without growing bitter. Let's say that again. Patience, or long-suffering, here's a definition for it. It is the ability to bear up under difficulty and to do so without giving up or giving into bitterness. To do so without giving up or giving in to bitterness. Because that is certainly the temptation. When someone wrongs us, um, our our, our knee-jerk temptation is to give in to bitterness. And we could talk about patience in two different ways, probably. We could talk about it in relation to circumstances. You know, patience and long-suffering related to maybe a a job choice or a career or something else. But we're going to talk about patience this morning in, in context here in relation to relationships. Patience not with difficult circumstances, but patience with difficult people. So let's describe the kind of people that we're talking about. Uh, first, we don't need patience to, be with, to deal with people that we are like, for the most part. You know, people that we have a natural affinity to. 
people that we have uh, similar interests and similar likes and similar personalities with. Oftentimes, we don't have to have patience to bear with those kinds of people because they just are naturally like us. We naturally have an affinity to them. So we can think about people that require patience almost on a sliding scale of sorts. On the one hand, there's people that that don't like us, and quite honestly, we, we don't really like them. We don't get their humor. We don't get their personality. We don't get their way of life. We don't get their decision-making patterns, whatever it may be. But then, further down the scale, people that need to be patient with are people that have hurt us. These aren't just people that we don't really get along with. These aren't people that we don't really like their way of life or our personalities don't jive or we think that they're, 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 they're humorous in, in the wrong situations and so on. But these are people that have actually hurt us. People that have actually wronged us. People that have lied to us. People that have let us down. People that have betrayed us. People that weren't there for us when we thought they needed to be. But at the end of this scale, even, there's one step further. Not just people that we don't really jive with. And then after that, not just people that have wronged us, maybe, or betrayed us, or lied to us. But the scale, even further, that Paul is addressing here in this text are people that are persecuting us. People that actually have it out for us. People that are actually seeking to harm us. That are trying to take us down that have a campaign out there in some way or another, whether through back conversations or through front formal conversations or whatever it may be, are actually trying to harm us. They could be trying to harm us economically. They could be trying to even harm us physically. But most of the time, they're trying to harm us socially and emotionally. They're trying to drag down our reputation. They're trying to smear and mar our character. It has emotional effects on us. That's a scale. And most of us pretty quickly can think of people, at least in the first two parts of that scale, people that we just don't really jive with, people that have harmed us, people that have hurt us, people that have lied to us, people that have let us down. And some of us even, sadly, have people in the third category, people that are actively trying to take us down. So, what is the anecdote? If patience, if long-suffering, is the ability to endure without growing bitter, without giving up, how do we do that? How do we obtain this kind of virtue? What is the pathway, what is the doorway to gaining this kind of virtue? What this text tells us is it tells us that we gain it that we acquire it, that we begin to cultivate this kind of virtue in a really, really radical sort of way. The way that we gain the resilience, because we all want to be those kinds of people if we're honest with ourselves. We want to be resilient people. We want to be the kind of person that is not affected by these outside forces coming upon us. We want to be the kind of people that don't say, that can say, that person can't harm me. That person's actions don't have an effect on me. But they do. They do. We all have those people. I have them in my head right now as I'm preaching. 
the people whose actions I so badly don't want them to affect me emotionally. I so badly don't want them to affect my, my, my disposition. I don't want it to consume my thought life. I don't want to replay the instances of my head of the things that they've done and the things that they've said. I want to be free of it. I want to be above it. But it does. It affects me. How do we get out of this? How do we get out of this cycle? Verse 17 and 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If, if we repay the evil, evil for the evil that has been done to us, we then will be overcome with the evil. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. I don't even know what I just said. If we repay evil for evil, then we will be overcome by the very evil that was done to us. So if we return the thing that has been done to us back upon the person, the very thing that we hate about it, we've now embodied ourselves. The very thing that we so dislike in what that person has done to us or said about us or thought about us or whatever it may be, when we repay it back to them, we ourselves become the very thing that we hate that was done to us. It's so hard because it is such a knee-jerk reaction of the heart to repay evil with evil. It's just something that we tend to do without even thinking about it. You know, as by way of example, when we're in a... I'll give you a couple examples. One, uh, my wife knows this about me. We were talking about this this morning. When we're in a, a disagreement with one another, her, her uh, biggest complaint about me when we have dis- arguments and, and discussions is how fast... And how rapid fire I am in my responses to her. It's just so easy. It's just so quick when we're wronged, when we feel offended, when it sort of that injustice rises up in us. It's boom, 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 boom. It's just so quick. It's a knee-jerk reaction to repay evil with evil. We see it in other people. We feel inside of us this rage rising up and the waiting for the opportunity to nail the person back with the verbal Assault. You see it in small group settings or conversations with people, in conversations that you're having with people, and there's people on the sliding scale that we were talking about, people that we maybe necessarily don't jive with, or people that have maybe said underhanded remarks about us. You feel it rising up inside of us, and it's almost a knee-jerk reaction to just fire back with a verbal assault. And when it happens, we become part of the problem. And when it happens and we do it, we, in that moment, we become part of what is wrong in the, with the world today. I don't remember who it was. I was looking for this illustration this morning. But one Christian pastor in the last couple hundred years, there was an op-ed in a newspaper, and it's asking the question, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote a letter to the editor, and he just said, I am. Chesterton? Chesterton. What's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton's answer is me. I am what's wrong with the world today. The evil that exists and resides in my own heart. So 
So the only anecdote, the only solution, the only way to conquer, conquer evil with good, the only way for us to truly prevail is for us to be patient, to bear up under the difficulty, the person, to not grow bitter. The only answer is to forgive. The only answer is to forgive. The only way that we can cultivate that kind of virtue within us, cultivating the virtue of being able to withstand and bear up under difficult, harsh mistreatment, is to forgive. And it is so counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive. Because we think the answer is to protect, to avenge ourselves, to repay, to protect ourselves. Certainly we think the answer is to distance ourselves, right? To not associate with those kinds of people anymore. But Paul addresses this issue head on in this text. In this text, the only antidote The only way to cultivate this kind of virtue, the only way to truly get your life back and not let these kinds of people and these situations harm you and affect you is to forgive. Is to forgive. It's not distancing yourself because he'll say, live at peace with one another. He'll say, you can't. That's not the solution. The solution isn't that you have to separate yourself. He says, no. No, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. That's a spatial reality. That that means you have to be in context with these kinds of people. We all have these people in our lives, people in this church even, people in our own family, that there's a bitterness in our heart towards them. And the only way to overcome it, the only way to overcome the, the wrong that has been done to you, the wrong that has been done maybe to someone you love, is to overcome the evil with good and to forgive. And to forgive. And that's what truly marks a Christian community. That is the... Um, example, demonstration par excellence of love. Love does not hold our record of wrongs. That's what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Love does not keep a record of wrong. The example, the display par excellence of love is forgiveness. It's to bear with one another patiently, suffering oftentimes for a really long time. But if we don't do it, we know what will happen. I can tell you a few things by personal experience. Is that first, um, is that we're consumed. (laughs) We're consumed and we're waiting for this other person's failure. We're just waiting for it. We're just waiting for this person to finally fail. And we're slowly, maybe not overtly, maybe not in some kind of outward way, but we're subconsciously kind of rooting for their failure. Your thoughts are taken up by it. Your conversations with other people are slightly tinged by it. It's a struggle to really think about much else. And it's devastating to us personally because the evil is conquering us. The evil is overcoming us. As we've said many times from this pulpit, that unforgiveness is a prison of your own making. That unforgiveness is a prison of your own making, and you've locked the door from the inside. You've locked the door from the inside. But second, the second thing it effect it has on us is it confuses our understanding of the gospel. 
It confuses our understanding of the gospel. See, the gospel, what it, one, of its, one of its effects in our lives, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that you are right before God, that all your hope, security, comfort, joy, satisfaction come from him, and that's an absolute free gift of grace to you. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that everything that your heart longs for finds its rest in God through Jesus Christ. But an unforgiveness begins to subtly distort and, 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 and confuse our understanding of the gospel. Because we can sit here and sit under the preaching of the gospel every week. We can go to community groups. We can go to triads. We can be in our devotions. We can listen to Christian worship music and just be soaking in the good news of Jesus, soaking in the gospel all the time, just relishing in his grace and so on. But for unforgiveness will subtly in our hearts distort our understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel is supposed to free us from our own self-righteousness. The gospel is supposed to free us of our own self-righteousness, our own desire, our our, our own um, uh, innate desire to shore ourselves up. Because what we're saying in unforgiveness is, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. But in the gospel, God is saying, you deserve wrath, you deserve justice, You deserve torment, you deserve hell for eternity. But because of the work of my son on the cross in your place and on your behalf, none of that is yours. Instead, you have hope, you have life, you have a future, and all that is yours in Jesus Christ. But unforgiveness says, no, no, there is something in me that's self-righteous. I didn't deserve that. That And I have a right to stand up for my rights. I have a right to stand up for my rights because what's been done to me is wrong. And I'm going to stand here and I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to avenge myself. And the Bible says, and Paul says here, that is evil. He says it's evil. And he says that we are overcoming the evil that has been done to us with evil. It confuses our understanding of the gospel. Unforgiveness fosters a misunderstanding of the gospel. But the other side of the coin is true. That forgiveness and bearing patiently, long-suffering with people reinforces our understanding of the gospel. Reinforces in our hearts that we are sinners saved by grace. That all that we have is a gift to us. That everything that God has given us in Jesus Christ, we didn't deserve. He absolutely does not treat us how we deserve. And when we, on a much smaller scale, compared to what God has done for us, forgive one another and patiently bear up under difficult circumstances and difficult people, it reinforces a touch of grace in our hearts. It's a tangible way that our hearts can relish in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's completely counterintuitive, as we've been saying, because the gospel itself is completely counterintuitive. Why would we sing this morning? Why would the maker of everything be laying in a, in, a, in a tomb with a lifeless body? It doesn't make any sense. But as Chris opened the service this morning, the mystery of the universe is to the praise of the glory of his grace. At the end of eternity, the pinnacle of God's glory that we'll sing about 
is his mercy and his grace. As he said, everyone will see his glory. Everyone will see his power, his might, his wrath, but only Christians will see his beauty. And his beauty is his grace, his beauty is his mercy, his beauty is his love. His beauty is his sacrifice for people that don't deserve it. And we begin to partially understand that just a little bit more when we forgive one another. So let me just quickly, I've been preaching extemporaneously for a few minutes. Let me circle us back in and drive us to a a bit of a close. Let me just give a few ways of how, how this looks. A few ways of how this looks. Uh, First, in verse 17, as we've been talking about not prepaying evil for evil. Um, first, forgiveness is always a decision before forgiveness is a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision before forgiveness is a feeling. Their temptation is to wait till, to forgive until we're over it until our hearts have moved on. But that's not the first in, in place that, that forgiveness is, is, is achieved. Forgiveness is first a decision, and I know that because Jesus says so. Mark chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. And when you're standing praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you for your trespasses. So he says, when you're standing there praying, and then he gives an imperative. When you're standing there praying, forgive. So Jesus isn't saying, when you're standing there praying, wait for the feeling to come, wait for you to feel better about it, and then forgive. Jesus says, when you are standing there praying, and you have something against somebody else, forgive. So forgiveness is first a decision, and then second, it's a feeling. But many of us know that sometimes that feeling takes a really long time to come. And some of us don't even know if it'll ever come, because we've been really deeply wronged by someone. And that feeling of forgiveness maybe sometimes comes and sometimes go, but we haven't fully experienced it yet. But forgiveness is first and foremost a decision. It means that it's granted before it's felt. And what it means is it means that we have decided to take the injury upon ourselves. I'm not talking right now about you know, intense abuse situations or physical abuse situations. We could talk about that another time. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking right now about relational situations. I'm talking right now about people that have wronged us, have hurt us, have slighted us, have mistreated us. And it means to take the injury upon ourselves. Second thing that it means. Second thing that it looks like. It means, I've already said, that you can't avoid them. (laughs) Because, you know, it's easy to say, I forgive them, but I don't want anything to do with them. I forgive them, but I don't want anything to do with them. Verse 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, one of the applications of so much as it depends on you is in reference to the fact that that person may not want to live with you and you can't control that. That person might not want anything to do with you, and you can't control that. But as far as it depends on you, forgiveness looks like living peaceably. Forgiveness looks like living peaceably. We've seen this too many times. 
I've seen it too many times, a tactic to subtly punish the other person for the way that they've wronged you is to avoid them, to rob them of your friendship, to rob them of your, pre- of your, of your presence. But when we do that, the evil is subtly winning. When we do that, the evil is subtly winning. Third thing that it looks like is to seek their good. Is to seek their good. Verse 20 says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you are heaping burning coals on his head. And we're talking about enemies here. We're talking about the far end of that spectrum. We're talking about people that are overtly out to get you. We're not talking about people that you don't just really jive with. We're not talking about people that maybe betrayed you or lied to you. We're talking about people that are actively on a campaign to hurt you. And it says to seek their good. To seek their good. To seek what is good for them. It's the third thing that it looks like. The fourth thing is similar. But it says to bless them. Bless those who persecute you. What does it mean to bless? What does it mean to seek their good? Well, one thing that it means, John Stott's commentary on Romans that I took a lot of this message from, is he says that there's a close connection between prayer and blessing. That one of the ways to seek someone's good, one of the ways to bless someone is to pray for them. He says, quote, There is no better way to express our positive wishes towards our enemy's welfare than to turn them to prayer. There is no better way to express our positive wishes towards our enemy's welfare than to turn to God in prayer. So we forgive. That's how it looks. Second, we can't avoid them. Third, we seek their good. Fourth, we bless them by giving them to God in prayer. But as I said, this is a... uh, a very difficult message, a hard-hitting message at times, and I long so much to be preaching the gospel to us. This kind of love that we're talking about, this kind of patience, this kind of forgiveness is so radically displayed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants the love of God And the mercies of God to be so prominent in our minds that he waits 12 chapters just relishing in the love of God, the goodness of God, the mercies of God before he even wants to lay on these kinds of hard-hitting imperatives. Listen to Stott's commentary. Again, he says, so far in Romans, all the the references to the agape love have been to the love of God. The love of God that was demonstrated on the cross in Romans 5.8. The love of God that's been poured into our hearts in Romans 5.5. The love of God that doggedly refuses to let us go that we read about in Romans chapter 8. The love of God, I love that phrase, that doggedly refuses to let us go. Like the hound of heaven that pursues us. This kind of never giving up, never failing, never giving in, never quitting on you kind of love. That nothing in all creation separating you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus kind of love. And Paul wants that to be so on the front of the people's minds that are reading this letter and how much we long and I long for that to be on the front of our minds because this is such a high calling that he's called us to in Romans chapter 12. And it is so difficult and it is so hard and I fail at it often and you do too and God is so gracious and he knows that. That the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God is there for us even in our failings, even as we repay evil with evil, even as we do harbor those bitter thoughts, 
The beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that there's forgiveness available even for that. Even in the ways that we don't love as we ought, the forgiveness and love of God is ever present for us. As he said at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, I appeal to you on the mercies of God. I don't appeal to you on the judgment of God. I don't appeal to you on the wrath of God. I don't appeal to you on the anger of God. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, on the mercies of God. Remember, remember, remember. As Eleni told us, the veil has been torn. Access to God is now ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been torn in two. The way has been made. Forgiveness is yours. God could not be more delighted in you right now than he is already. Let that sink into our hearts. Let the mercy of God reign supreme in this church as we celebrate and display his beauty and his glory. His glory, his majesty, his power, his might, his awe-shaking presence and his beauty that he would become the Lamb of God. He would be the one that showed mercy to us when we didn't deserve it, when we were running the other way. Brothers and sisters, I appeal to you in the mercies of God. See Jesus Christ in your place and on your behalf. Let that trickle down from your head to your heart. I struggle with words to say it. There's a longing in me that wants to communicate it that only the Holy Spirit can. See him, behold him, treasure him. Let it free you from the prison of our own making. Let it free me of the prison that I've locked from the inside. Let the mercy, the love, the grace of God flow into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us. What an amazing statement. We can say that we love you. And we can say it because you first loved us. Help us, Lord. Help us to experience this kind of new life, this kind of long-suffering, as we look to you, our Lord Jesus, and see the love that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're standing here for a moment, a very practical application for us would be to heed Jesus' words in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read it to us again, and then we'll just pause for a moment of silence. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. And wherever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Forgive them, they know not what they do.
words of great mercy to us. The table is open to celebrate the mercy of God in Jesus Christ to all who have put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, repented and for, repented for their sins and received the grace of Jesus. If that's you, you're a Christian, uh, the table is open for you. Um, if you've made your faith public through the waters of baptism and you're joining us from another congregation, you're welcome to partake of the table with us. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to not partake. This is a meal that is for uh, Christians, those that have put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Instead, I would encourage you uh, to consider what it would be to repent of your sins and to look to Jesus for forgiveness. You can come up row by row starting in the back, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us to partake corporately.